One of the sayings that I had, especially when we were growing, you're going to come to work every day with a smile on your face and you're going to go home the same way because you think you did a good job and you're going to make your customer happy. And if that doesn't work for you, don't work for me. The Uniformer. Insights and interviews into the people and companies that drive the markets for uniforms, image apparel, and public safety equipment. The Uniformer is a production of the North American Association of Uniform Manufacturers and Distributors, the NAUMD. Hello, welcome to The Uniformer. I'm Rick Levine from the NAUMD, and I'm sitting here, delighted to be sitting here today with Harvey Klein, who today we will introduce as business coach and a uniform industry veteran and and a uniform industry expert. I've learned so much from from Harvey over the years in this industry. I cannot tell you, dear listeners. So Harvey, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity. Excellent. Many listeners will know who you are if they've been a part of the NAUMD world, of course, and in the uniform industry over the decades, but perhaps you could give a little bit of the autobiography background of um, how you how you came into this industry. You talk about Red the Uniform Tailor. And- like any normal kid, I left for college and thought I was going to be an engineer. And I actually am a graduate engineer, worked in the uh, jet aircraft overhaul industry for a few years. And uh, my parents called me up and said, you know, we should buy Red the Tailor. And I go, mom, do you have an idea how much money we've spent on my education? You want me to be a tailor? Really? She says, no, it'll be great. So I was uh, working for a Fortune 500 company. I was the keynote speaker at our sales meeting. And I excused myself and said, okay, guys, I'm going back home. And uh, two weeks later, we owned Red the Uniform Tailor. And uh, that was in 1977. We actually took title of the company. And, you know, we operated that company until 2017. I had my, you know, my family around me, which was very nice. You know, we all lived in the area. My youngest brother was only 17 at the time, but we made him a partner in the 80s and uh, life went on. And so we went out and, and built a company from a little different perspective. My math is not fantastic. I'm not an engineer like you, Harvey. So that's 40 years, though, that you had uh, uniform read read the uniform tailor read the tailor under your you and your family's management. Correct. And were your folks in the schmata business, as they say already? Why did they want to buy Red the Tailor? Both my grandparents were tailors. So let's start there. And then my father was in the pocketbook manufacturing business with my grandfather. And then they split up for various reasons. And my father bought a very large dry cleaning operation in uh, New Jersey. And so he needed some people to come work for him. And he got this very nice Italian family to come work for my parents in, in the dry cleaning operation. And the husband, we got a job working for the original Red, Giulio Pasqualini Carnavali. Giulio needed to sell the company for various reasons. And my parents called me up and says, yeah, it'll be great. And so, you know, for the next five years, we starved to death, but that's how life is. So, so you added the word uniform. So you and the family buy this tailoring operation and, and you're coming in as the engineer and young businessman and, you know, they're going to lean on you for that part. And you, and who, who says, I think we should go into the uniform business. Julia started a little bit. He had uh, like 
three employees and they were making pants in the back room. We just uh, continued to grow that. We went out and sold product. You know, I didn't know that you shouldn't sell to a customer that was bigger than you were in the first place, which I did in 2078. Didn't know I shouldn't take a million and a half dollar order when you're only a $300,000 company. Became a financial problem, as you can only imagine. Sure. Using my engineering, we designed some of our own machinery and we started making all, all of our law enforcement product made to measure. And so we stuck to that formula because I came from a business where we were the best at what we did. And when I came into the uniform business, I wanted to be the best at what we did. Right. And that was the same formula. I just wanted to not be like everyone else. I didn't want to sell an off the rack product, understanding that my father sent me to college in a made to measure suit. You know, I, I understood that world probably a little bit better. And so between me and my brothers, we designed some of our own machinery and created our own styling for our law enforcement shirts. And the company continued to grow from there over the years. You know, you, you add a couple of customers every year and you grow a company, you know, 5% a year, 8% a year, 10% a year at a time. And the next thing you know, you know, we, we ended up being a fairly big operation at the end of the day. Yeah. At the end, you had thousand customers and, you know, and we're outfitting, you know, across many states at that point, right? Well, we had about 3000 law enforcement customers or under that umbrella. We had nine retail operations, 350 online stores. And so uh, it was, uh, it was a hoot. Uh, it was that uh, the callback to, you said you wanted to do something unique when, when we were first discussing uh, it having a made to measure approach rather than a stock approach to it was the magic. For us, it was absolutely it. And, uh, you know, obviously we started in New Jersey and then, you know, you hire a salesperson here and a salesperson there and they get the idea of what we were trying to do. And then of course we had the opportunity of, you know, casino gambling coming to New Jersey. And so we had another little division and we started doing casino work. And we worked with, you know, various people, you know, in that industry. We actually went through, obviously, the security door initially uh, at Caesars many years ago. And, you know, well, you could do this. Can you do that? And so I get a call from someone I actually still know, still out there. Uh, they were originally from Valleys, and they asked me if I could make a dealer shirt for them. So they gave me this dealer shirt that had horizontal pleats. And I brought it back to my brother and he says, uh, we can't make that. Uh, there's no way we can make that. So, you know, when you deal with family, you, you figure things out, how to get things done. And so I let that percolate for about a day and a half. And I went back to him and says, so if you actually had to make that shirt, what do you need? He says, well, I need $50,000 worth of equipment and I need a separate three person staff. I said, okay. Went back to the customer and says, here's the deal. We'll make the shirt. I need a $50,000 deposit and we'll make you that shirt. We'll send you 300 a week until you tell me to stop. Five, eight years later, we were still making that shirt. And the people that we actually hired to make that shirt were there the day we sold our company in, in 2017. Some of the original employees were still there. Wow. So it was pretty cool. We made that shirt forever. You know, it, it became almost like a calling card. Oh, you can make a dealer shirt? Well, can you make a cocktail dress? We didn't even have designers yet. You know, it's everybody's thinking about how do we do all of these things, you know? 
And so, you know, and the business sort of, you know, one step in front of the other, you stretch, you look at a, a project and say, can we do that? And sometimes you make a good decision. Sometimes you make a bad decision, right? But if you don't try, you don't grow. If you don't try, you don't grow. The bad decisions, did that affect family holidays? <laughs> you know what? We can yell and scream and carry on at work, but we used to go out to dinner after. It was perfectly fine. Work stayed at work. It worked out. It also helped that I was also significantly older than my brothers. But but mom and dad, I mean, you had three, you had, you know, multi, if you were significantly older, it's almost like there were three generations in the... My parents were part of it initially, a little bit to help financially as well, you know. And then when we brought my youngest brother in, my parents retired. Ah, okay. So that was, you know, we were only in the business a few years at that point. But that's how we grew. And, you know, you hire a designer or you hire a pattern maker or you hire the next person or you hire a good salesperson. And then, you know, opportunity takes you to different places. You know, I tried to open uh, an operation in Atlanta, failed miserably. But we bought an operation in Milwaukee. And the next thing you know, I have one in Texas. And we, we grew from there. And eventually I went back to Atlanta and opened another operation. And that's, those stores are still open. All of them, I think. And so uh, 40 years later, um, you ended up selling to Gauls was Correct. what happened, right? Yeah. And then uh, I, I'm not going to get the, the sequence exactly right, but so they buy the company, but they, Gauls didn't want to be in the casino business per se. Well, correct. So I was asked to stay on, me and my brothers were asked to stay on for a period of time, which we did, and we had contracts. And then they did not want the casino industry at all. So I helped them spin that off to uh, Unisync in Canada. I had called James Bottoms and uh, talked to Doug Good. And I was able to put the deal together between the two principals, so to speak. And they bought that company and we moved it out of the old building and reset them up. And I stayed on with Unisync until September of 20. So right up to COVID. Right. Yeah. Well, when I, when I guided the, the New Jersey group through the COVID and through the PPE and all of that, and I was a part-timer. I went in every other week, spent uh, three, four days there. And then, you know, COVID wasn't getting any better anytime soon. So finally they said, you know, Harv, I think maybe it's time. And I happen to know now, because you and I have talked, you're help, uh, helping a number of companies, consulting and advising on the both the uniform space and perhaps even business in general. Um, uh, of particular interest to me is uh, Botella. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, Botella. Exactly. It's uh, Spanish for beautiful fabric. All made, every product that they produce is primarily made from uh, recycled plastic. So it's a very interesting opportunity. I mean, it's the sports, not sportswear. I mean, it's it's designed for uniform. The program is designed for the specialty industry. So, so it's polo shirts, it's t-shirts, it's Henleys, it's quarter zips, and it's a couple of dress shirts. And that's where we're starting. Um, I got a call. It's a very <laughs> unusual thing. At NAUMD, and I can't even remember how many years ago it was, I met someone, Pierre Chiron at uh, NAUMD, many years ago. I think he's had a business in Vancouver, actually. And uh, we sort of stayed in touch over the years, a little bit here, a little bit there. And then he was at Unisync when I went to Unisync. Uh, He retired and I had left Unisync. I get a call from him last February and Pierre says to me, Harvey, 
I got this nice family up in Canada. They really want to be in the U.S. market. Help them. And so, uh, you know, we talked with uh, the principal there, with uh, Alexi. Here we are. We got product coming in in another few weeks. Our website is just about finished. And uh, we'll be attending not only the ASI, but the PPAI show. Obviously, we were at NAUMD by my encouragement. I think the product line is, is very cool, very today, very where the industry needs to go. We can't keep throwing plastic bottles in the ocean. It has to stop. Yeah, no, I really appreciate the mission. Um, I want to support that as, you know, as much as possible. Uh, we, you know, uh, Martex is, you know, as you know, huge in, in that space with plastic bottles as well. And they recently participated in a sustainability webinar that we had done. And so it's definitely on, on my mind. And, 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 and then for Botella, we, uh, or you and um, uh, the team there had submitted for an NAUMD award and, and, uh, that was recognized by the judges as well as 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 a up and coming new innovative product. So it's great to see that that is entering the stream, and you know, in the the promotional products world, which you know burns through, <laughs> you know, a billion polos a year. So uh, and then of course you know there's going to be application in in the uniform space as well. Well, as you know, it's it, there's a lot of crossover, and he actually has a whole hospitality line that he sells actually in, in Canada. So wow. he literally make anything. He makes chefware, aprons, baseball caps, all out of recycled. Um, but what is interesting for me is the owner, the principal is only 28 years old. Amazing. So I have shoes older than this kid. <laughs> I love that. So, but but it's, it's, it's fun for me to, to mentor someone like that. So that's a great segue that I'm curious about, because with 40 years and you built this company and, you know, a lot of, I'm an entrepreneur too. I've, I've had companies and they go from me doing everything to, you know, having employees, you know, you did it then next level where, you know, you had, I don't know what, let's call, call it hundreds of employees. And, and how, you know, that's a, a, that's amazing that you can transition in that way and go from this small, you know, operation to, to then be able to scale it and still operate as the leader. That always amazes me that it like someone, you know, for better or worse, Mark Zuckerberg goes from the dorm room to managing whatever it is, a million employees, you know, you know, so how do you do that, Harvey? How do you, how do you manage people? How do you hire? How do you know what the right amount of, 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 carrot versus stick is supposed to be? How do, how do we think about that in today's world? And one more, which is generational, because you're talking, you know, this idea that here's this young person, 28, you know, how do the two of you speak the same language to, you know, grow a, a brand new company that is in, you know, wor worlds uh, very different from where the two of you uh, might have come from? Well, it's interesting. I have to tell you that I have to credit Believe it or not, I have attended, I don't know how many U U NUMDs over the years, but it's probably 35 to 38. I don't know if one every year, but you guys have always had great speakers. And I learned something either from uh, other members of NAUMD or the speaker staff that you have. And I am a sponge in those environments. And so I learned a lot from people that were around. And so when you listen, as opposed to talk, 
and I do enough talking for most people, you'd be surprised what you learn. But when you have to go out and build a team, you know, it's, you have to figure out what makes people work. What, why do they go to work? And I try to tell them one of the sayings that I had, especially when we were growing very rapidly in, in around 2015, I says, look, you're going to come to work every day with a smile on your face and you're going to go home the same way because you think you did a good job, right? And you're going to make your customer happy. And if that doesn't work for you, don't work for me. Please leave. So I encouraged my staff to enjoy the day. I enjoyed every day I went to work. I, I absolutely loved it, you know? And so, yes, not every day is easy. Of course it's not. But, you know, the ups were way more than the downs. Let's put it that way. But when you talk to a staff that you can say, okay, here's your job. This is what we expect you to do. And I want you to enjoy doing it. When you have a customer and you make that customer happy, you should feel good about that. And that became the premise of everything. So when we went from you know, 40 to 185, 200 employees, that just became my speech. Have a good time. I will let you do your job the way you think you can do it. And unless you have a problem, don't call me, right? I empower my people to learn. I empowered my people to grow. And I will tell you that one of the best things, one of the night, I, I got two over the years, you know, you get a compliment from here and a compliment from there. But the two greatest pleasures I ever had is I had an employee that came to work for us who was an immigrant and she stayed with us for about 15 years. And she came to me before she left the company. And she says, Harvey, I want you to know that because I had a job here and I worked and she was a very good worker, but my son is now a captain in the US Army. And you think about how you've helped that family over the years, right? And so to me, that's the payback, right? That you know that you helped someone else improve themselves, right? And I think that that's important, very important. And the nicest compliment I ever got was from an employee who said, if you weren't my boss, we'd be friends. Okay. There is a lot that you just threw out that I, I would love to unpack uh, some of it at least, but let's start with that last one. Can employer and employee be friends? It's tough because you have to maintain a certain amount of distance, right? But I will tell you that I still speak to that person probably every other week or so. She calls me, she's still in the business, still working. She's not much younger than me, actually, but loves to go to work. She came to me. It's an interesting story. She's an interesting story. She was a nurse practitioner, and she decided she wanted to be a designer. So she went to FIT in New York, got her design degree, shows up on my doorstep one day and says, I will work for you for free if I could just learn. So I said, well, nobody works for free but I'm sure that the designer will have you putting away samples, uh, swatches and buttons and everything else. So I'll give you $10 an hour. So over the years, she became a very good designer. She was terrific. She became the head designer. She probably makes more than that every other minute at this point. And so she grew in the company because she was allowed to grow. But Harvey, what if they do it wrong? You can't just 
tell them to go do their job and in the way that they want, because what if they don't do it the right way? So here's what you do. You let them make a mistake and then you go back to them and say, okay. So you'd always back up, especially on the sales side, you would always back up your employee, right? You'd always do that. But you take them aside and say, okay, look, I think it would have been better if you did it this way, right? A lesson learned. They usually didn't cost me too much money when we made mistakes. So it's how it is, you know, because um, you have to let them experiment. They have to let them. I had a rule when you came to work for me. I said, look, you're going to do it my way for 90 days. If you got a better way after 90 days, come see me. And you'd be surprised how many changes we made in the company over the years because the employee thought of an easier, faster way to do something. But you initially said, give me 90 days doing it my way, even if you don't agree, you know, just give it a shot. And then then we'll talk after that. That's kind of the way you presented it. Correct. And that would work. But did you happen to notice that there were ages, uh, generations that 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 worked for and and generations that that didn't work for out of curiosity? Can you teach an old dog new tricks? Yeah, well, I would say that younger people tend to be more innovative. You know, they could think of a faster way. And the older people, you know, we didn't have, I mean, certainly we had our share of older people, but they were there for a long time. You know, I had employees with me 30 years, 35 years. I had a salesman with me probably 35 years. And so they, they learn and they know what, how I think, and they know how I've always respected them and they needed to respect me. And if that didn't work, then eventually they leave. I mean, you know, not everyone was a winner, I'm sure, you know, but you give the people an opportunity to learn. You know, you could say all of those wonderful things during the interview process, but so many companies right now are struggling to find people, hire people and keep people, you know, what, what do you think, would your approach be different today, given how, how, how much of a struggle we seem to be having finding uh, and keeping good people or said another way, what was your approach to recruiting and hiring other than if you can't smile at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, which is not to be, uh, sloughed off. I really like that approach that's saying, Hey, if you're not going to be happy here, um, you best, you know, let's just shake hands and part ways now, because, you know, if you can't approach this as a happy experience, then you're not going to, you're not going to fit in here. Um, uh, uh, interestingly, um, Mike, uh, Fadden, uh, C- current CEO of Gauls, uh, on an episode, uh, a few episodes back said he hires optimists. That's his recruiting approach, you know, and it reminds me a little bit of what you're talking about. Of If you can't start the day with a smile, you're probably, you know, not going to not going to work out for us here. And it's a little bit like the optimist uh, attitude, in essence. You know, what do you think of that? Very, very much so. And so, you know, and you have to look at the team that you already have around you. So when you bring someone in, you have to decide whether that person's going to be comfortable with their coworkers as well. Because the coworkers in my world, you know, my coworkers will come to me and say, hey, that guy's not holding up his, his end, you know, or he's troubled. So, you know, I, uh, my staff, you know, knew that they can come to me with those situations. But to hire today, I will tell you that it's probably a lot more complicated. 
But, you know, I, I refer to it as, are the lights on? When you look in a person's eyes and you see, are they bright or are they not bright, right? Do they seem to be eager to learn? Do they seem to be totally interested in what you're doing? Because the funny thing about the uniform industry, from what I've gathered over my 40 years, once you're in, you never leave. People just stay in this business forever. How many retired guys do we know around the industry that are still like me, hanging out, doing whatever all we do, right? I mean, there were three or four of them at the last trade show. They all should have been retired. But, you know, this is what we know. This is what we like. And if we like the business, we stayed. But hiring people today is different because the carrot is very different. People today, A, they want to be given instruction on what their responsibilities are, but then they want to go about doing it on their own meaning that they want to figure it out to a certain degree by themselves. And they want to be able to have the ability to work hard, but they also want to have the ability to play hard. And so I refer to it as, can you burn the candle at both ends? That's what my father used to say. Harvey, you're burning the candle at both ends. I said, well, if you can't do that, it's not fun. That's just part of it. You know, what, what makes a person happy? You know, if they say, well, I only want to work 20 hours a week. Well, that's probably not going to be my employee. But if I have an employee says, well, I'll get my job done and some weeks I'll work 60 and some weeks I'll work 30, I'm okay with that. You know, is it pro- you know, and it depends on the job description. Is it project driven or is it line, you know, if you don't show up to work, the next person doesn't have work. I mean, you know, you know, we had all classes of employees, right? I had people making 10, $15 an hour and I got people making, you know, a couple of hundred grand. So, you know, it's, it's not the same answer for everyone. And you have to figure out what that is. If you're hiring sales staff, yes, he's right. Absolutely on, on target. You want to be an optimist. What, what, what do you want from your future? You know, and the future always sends, I want to have a nice family. I want to make a decent living. And uh, I want to have my health. Well, that isn't what people said 40 years ago. That is not what people said 40 years ago. Not at all. What did they say 40 years ago, Harvey? 40 years ago, they wanted to come in, punch a clock and go home. Oh, so there was a complete separation of your work and personal life, and you didn't want to have to think about work after you left. And is that what you're saying or something? Well, different? exactly. I mean, I don't know that there was a lot of interaction even between employees. I mean, we had, we would take uh, employees on, on rafting trips to build team, right? We would do that, you know, raft down the Delaware River. Um, we would have, you know... Christmas parties, you know, where everyone was invited and it didn't matter who you were. And so we did all of those things to build team as much as we could. We would have pizza Fridays because we had a great week or a great month. Um, And we did that all through the company. You don't think those same lessons apply today or how are they, how are they different? I think they're different because the mindset is different. I think the mindset of younger people and, you know, I have daughters in that age bracket. And so I have one that I would call a double A <laughs> type personality, you know, works a gazillion hours a week and perfectly happy to do that. And I have one who basically volunteers at a YMCA. So <laughs> different strokes for different people and what makes people happy. And if you have to find what's going to make that employee happy, right? And it's not always pay and it's not always time off. It's different things for different people. And today it's a much broader spectrum. And you have to be more open-minded about 
who you're talking to and, and how you talk to them. Look, back in the day, you know, 40 years ago, we all told dirty jokes in the office. We used to smoke in the office. Obviously, all of that is gone. I mean, that's not the, you know, um, you know, the, you have to be careful, you know, far more careful today about all the other things that go around, you know, sexual harassment. We had to have sexual harassment training. Hmm. You know, I had in my stores, we had emergency evacuation. What if we had a gun? You know, what if someone walked into one of my buildings with a gun? Right. So we'd have those kinds of trainings. So, you know, it's different now. It's very different now. And dealing with the supply chain, I talked to a couple of people yesterday, actually, and they're absolutely screaming about supply chain. I said, what do I do? My employees and stuff is not here. He says, well, you have two choices. Either you pay them or you give them time off, but you better figure out that you better not lose them. Yeah, that's a, quite a challenge. We do not see an end to that at the moment, unfortunately. I think we're looking at well into third quarter of third quarter of 22 is when things may start to normal out i think i'm hoping that has just been a big shock i think to our industry at how painful uh the supply chain you know became and of course our industry is no different than any other um, manufactured you know good uh but we have uh, a, the difference of outfitting uh, critical industries and, you know, first responders and, you know, uh, organizations that if they don't continue to operate, our country in essence falls apart uh, or any, any country. I mean, the people that are members of our organization are outfitting, you know, millions of workers in, you know, dozens of countries. And, and if, if we can't, I've been phrasing it lately that I think we got spoiled, Harvey. We we just assumed we could move product around the planet basically for free whenever we felt like it. You know, like it was so cheap and easy to move product around the planet. And all of the sudden, you know, bam, overnight, it seems, you know, we just can't do it. Uh, and even when we can, it's hugely expensive. And I mean, is is that the biggest problem facing our industry right now? Well, I would definitely say that supply chain is 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 certainly currently the bigger industry, more more than the employee shortage, because there's a couple of facets there. First of all, think about the U.S. government when they buy uniforms, they're Barry Amendment, right? They have to be 100% made in America, American product, American findings. It's American. There's a reason for that. Now, the reason is, if we have to go to war, who are we going to go to war against? We certainly can't be making our military garments in China or in Vietnam or Russia or any other part of the world, right? They have to be made here so we can control it. So it's somewhat our own fault. And I'm going to say it that way simply. You have a number of factors. First of all, you know, when it came to the fabric, you know, you had the dyeing issues and the EPA, and they didn't have the technology to really clean that all up properly, right? And then you have the situation of chasing cheap labor, right? And so it became too easy, you know, to, to, to chase the cheap labor. You know, I'll give you an example. I was making some chef coats for a customer domestically, and they were costing me about four and a half dollars to sew them together. I could have made that chef coat in China for 60 cents. What are you going to do? So we would go to customer and say, it's your option. 
I'll make it in China, but this is what we're faced with. Or I'll make it in the US and you're gonna to have to pay, right? Well, the American public as in general, and it's not just our industry, I, you know, I, I'm now in North Carolina and they're complaining about labor shortage and product shortage for the furniture industry. Well, the furniture industry left North Carolina in the last 20 years. And now they want to bring it back. And now there's no one who knows how to make furniture. And so you can't, you know, you can't turn the clock back and you can't crank it up instantly. And I don't, and with, with the pandemic that we went through, a lot of people laid off staff, right? And as a result, you know, they don't have staff and they were not anticipating this huge glut of spending. So, you know, like me, I didn't, go anywhere for two years. I didn't travel. I didn't go to hotels. I didn't go to restaurants. I didn't get on an airplane, you know, for almost two years. Well, now we all want to go, right? I'm vaccinated. I'm ready to go. Where am I going? There's nobody to take my luggage in from the street. And so the other big change that we're seeing, and, and it's going to be in every industry, is you're going to end up doing more for yourself. The airlines started doing it. When was the last time you used a ticket agent to book an airline flight? Well, the whole industry now, you know, this whole online ordering, whatever it is you want to do, you talk to your local electric company and you got 47 prompts to figure out what you need to do, right? And you got to do it yourself and put it on automatic payment or don't put it on automatic payment. No, you got to go paperless because we're going to charge you $2 less. This is the world we're in today. They, everybody wants to do more with less because they have to. And old folks like me, I find it difficult. I find it annoying, <laughs> actually. When I look at that lens that you're showing me, and I, and I call back the Harvey Klein that says to his brother, what do you need? Oh, I need equipment. I need technology. And that's then how we can service that client. So is it just simply that, it, that we've, you've had enough of new technology, perhaps, <laughs> you know, in that sense that, because it seems to me, Harvey, like you have been solving those same problems that you're now telling us aptly, and I do not disagree at all with your thinking, by the way, you're saying, hey, you know what, we're gonna need to solve a lot of this. Uh, and we have an appetite for solving it with technology. So, you know, yes, we're, we're going to put um, uh, uh, travel agents out of business because they no longer need to help you with ticketing. Uh, and we're not even going to need as much staff at the airline because we're, you know, or at least we're not going to need the staff standing at the counter with ticketing or manning that 800 phone line with ticketing, you know, and they were probably wearing a uniform anyway, so we don't need them. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It's like, the, yes, we're going to solve it with technology and we're going to and we're not going to need, you know, uh, to keep recruiting truckers because we're going to have driverless cars and we're not going to need as many sewers because we're going to have machines that can just take the instructions straight from the CAD uh, and, you know, and, and pull the fabric through and cut it and sew it and, you know, bada bing, bada boom you know, we've got that garment. That's exactly correct. So I was in a BMW factory in Germany, um, 2019. And the only people actually working there were people that were loading the machine that, that built the car. They were only loading the parts because the parts had to go in a certain way. After that, the robots built the car. There was nobody, you know, with a, nut, with a screwdriver or a wrench building a car in Germany at BMW. Our industry is going to get like that. 
we don't have a choice, right? And I see it in a lot of different ways because you look at, you know, I came from that made to measure world, right? And the clothes have to fit. And in the uniform industry, the clothes have to fit. How many people actually know how to measure for clothes? It doesn't exist. Those young people, they don't know how to measure. They don't even know which end of the tape is up, right? But you have a company like Body Data, which I'm now part of, and there's a few other competitors out there that are doing similar work or their version of their work. And so now I don't need to have someone who knows how to measure. I need to give them a, an iPad with a radar gun on it and, uh, and I'll walk around you and I will tell you what size you are. And so that is the future because we still have to get these people measured. They still have to get into clothes that have to fit. And, you know, there's fit like in the commercial laundry, you know, you have that fit or you have the airline fit or you have the host hostess in a, in a casino fit or the cocktail waitress or the dealer program. You know, if you're looking at those, you have the military fit. So, you know, in 1991, I actually did digital measuring uh, for the U.S. Uh, Air Force. Really? So in 1991, uh, my company was chosen to redesign the uniforms of the United States Air Force, which we did. Part of that project was we measured 2,000 women who claimed to be size eight. So you're smiling and I know why. <laughs> we all know what that chart looked like. And, we, and we, we, ha we had these giant machines that we, we took out. They were similar to what, the, you know, if you fail the test going through the quick thing at the airport, you got to go through the big box, right? And well, they're radar. That's exactly what they are. And so we had these and we had them in three Air Force bases around the country. And we measured 2,000 women and there was no standard. And to this day, there is no standard for women's clothing. What do you do with that? I mean, the military figured it out back in the, I don't know if it was Civil War or World War I, they had to standardize, you know, what size is a man's waist, for God's sake. So we didn't even know what that was supposed to be. So over the years, the men's sizing became fairly, you know, organized, right? A 17 and a half was a 17 and a half. Now, the 17 and a half is a lot wider than it used to be, but it's still a 17 and a half. But in the women's world, there is no standard. When we did that for the Air Force, we had to create a standard. So at the time, the women's clothing, only about 20% um, of the clothes fit the women without significant alterations. After we finished and recharted all of that, and I brought in people from Cal, uh, Georgia Tech and FIT, and we worked on patterns. We got finished, we got 85% of the uniforms actually fit mm. without significant alterations. Well, obviously that was a pretty big deal at the time. So it was a fairly interesting couple of years for us. I, I actually was in the Pentagon the morning of Desert Storm explaining to the four-star general what shade of blue that uniform was gonna be when we were done. It was a lot of fun. The Air Force Academy for another 10 years. Nice. Well, you were ideal for it because you were doing uh, custom measuring and you were uh, making it uh, made to measure as, as you've used the phrase. And, and what's interesting to me then is because now we can measure the individual and body data and, and others uh, that, that are providing this type of technology, um, because we can now measure the individual, I'm smiling because it almost feels like, well, now it's time to go back you know, to 
you know, to get rid of ready to wear and everything will just be made on demand. And we will take those measurements and they will be fed to that BMW assembly line that you're talking about. And the fabric will, you know, uh, so all we, all we need on hand is uh, dyed, you know, dyed goods and the garment will be made. Uh, and then 24 hours later, you know, shipped off to, to the customer. So, how long till we can have that? Well, I've been saying that now for more than six to nine months, that that's how I see the future, exactly the way you just described it. I don't see any need. I think we're going to have, the retail stores are going to be more like look, look stores. I'm going to call them look stores where you can go in and touch the fabric or actually see the design. And that'll be retail. And then you're going to go over to their kiosk and you're going to go order your clothes online, right? And what you're going to do is you're going to have your, your body measurements. You're going to have a code that you can send to any retailer anywhere in the world and say, here's my sizes, right? This is what size I am. Please make me my clothes or send me the correct size. You know, we'll transition from they will send you the size that they think fits the best to the point where, yeah, now there's no inventory. We just have fabric, zippers, and buttons. I think we're looking at 10 to 15 years. And I don't disagree with that. And, and, and in some ways, maybe it's on the same schedule the driverless car is on. It could be, but I will tell you, my next car is going to be electric. Right. And my car already, if I go in a straight line, pretty well will drive itself. I'm not comfortable with it going around a curve. I grab the steering wheel anyway, but uh, my car will drive, you know, down the turnpike fairly easily. And the most recent, you know, car that I got, yeah, it keeps me in the lane. Adaptive cruise control. Uh, yes, adaptive cruise control. So now I don't even have to worry if I'm getting too close to a car. I just say, always keep me three car lengths back. And it just, you know, I might as well be uh, recording a podcast while I'm driving, right? Absolutely. And there's an example of how technology is going to creep into our world every day. And I think every day we go faster. And every day... We find a new thing, a new shiny thing that we want. Yeah, what's fascinating to me in the uh, world of apparel and uniforms is we started this conversation talking about how you bought, is it Julio's business, right? You, you, you and, and mom and dad said, hey, there, you know, he's got a good tailoring business. And what happened is I would show up and Julio would measure me. And then I would uh, feel some fabrics, right, with that he had on hand. And I'd say, yeah, okay, so I need six new shirts, Julio. And, and then I would come back or he would drop them off to my place of work where then uh, he had made six new shirts based exactly on my measurements. And you just described the same retail experience. It's just Julio is now you know, Hal the computer, be, and, and, and I walk inside Hal, or I just uh, literally take my phone, you know, and I take a couple of snapshots, and it, you know, uh, uh, measures me. And then um, I've selected, well, actually, the company has selected the fabric for me, because this is what you know, um, let's you picked on Home Depot because this is what Home Depot, you know, requires I wear. So, you know, now uh, great. So within 48 hours now, XYZ uniform provider uh, has my Home Depot 
you know, six shirts uh, ready and my pants. And, you know, uh, it, it, all we'll have to inventory perhaps is that leather belt <laughs> and that, uh, that the sky cap for the, you know, uniform, uh, which is still, you know, hand assembled, at least in this country. Uh, so the, there are still elements because uh, Lord knows there's a lot of SKUs, um, especially like in a casino program. What? You might have a hundred SKUs that are part of that, that uniform program. And, and, um, but, but to be able to do it on demand um, in the next 10 or 15 years, I mean, that's a huge shift, isn't it? Yeah, well, at the end of the day, you don't want to be the last buggy whip from that. At some point, the world is going to keep moving forward. You're not going to be able to stop it. The online shopper has become norm, right? My kids don't go to a store. A store? Why would you ever go to a store? There's people there and they could have germs. I'm not going there. Yeah, we don't go to stores anymore, right? No one goes to a store anymore. I did 90% of my Hanukkah shopping online. I still happen to like to go to a store, but I'm old. And what's interesting, uh, I was talking with someone the other day about this, and, and now Amazon's opening all these stores, right? So Amazon's opening bookstores. Amazon owns you know, massive numbers of grocery stores. Now, Amazon has the Amazon Go or Amazon Fresh, you know, where uh, you're not, you don't have to go to checkout. You just go in and you grab the item and, and you walk out. Um, and it just knows that you picked up that item and it knows who you are and, and all and of that. I, can have, I have an Amazon warehouse six miles from me and I can order, I can order whatever I want at three in the afternoon. And by 530, it's on my doorstep. That's crazy. And I have a Whole Foods here, which is part of Amazon, right? I have, yeah. I think they just go in the store, pick it up and bring it to me. I don't know how they do it so fast. They do it. And, and so that is, you know, I, I used to tell somebody about, we, talk, we would get into conversations about delivery. And right now, obviously, everybody is very concerned about delivery, right? We can't get things delivered. So I don't remember what year it was, but it was certainly some years back. And there was a guy at his computer and he's typing away. And he turns around to his fax machine and out comes a trombone. That to me was the future of the industry. The good news is that we have to, we'll still be wearing clothes. Everybody still wears clothes. What those clothes are made of and how they're made might be changing. But we have a great industry because we're still going to need to wear clothes, right? Unless we literally never go out anymore. <laughs> we could all just hang out naked, but, but assuming that won't happen, where do you think, you know, young people will play a role in this new uniform industry that we're talking about? And, and would you recommend it? Would you encourage your, your, would you encourage your daughters if they said, you know what, dad, I actually do want to be in the uniform industry. How would that sit with you? Well, it was perfectly fine. I had one of my daughters with me for a few years. She was my, my AP. But I will tell you that it's all about 100% of anything, right? It's 100% cotton. It's 100% wool. It's 100% because at the end of the day, when you're tired of wearing your clothes, what are you going to do with them? What are we going to do with those clothes? They have to get recycled, right? We had that whole lecture on sustainability and recycling at NAUMD just a few weeks, short weeks ago right? How do we sort all those clothes and put them back into the world? Look, the government has been doing it for years. That's what our money is made out of. Our money is made of old denim. The dollar bill is made from denim. How do they get all the denim? Well, they collect jeans, I guess. I don't know exactly how they do it, but that's going to be the future. 
there's no question that we cannot keep throwing things away. And you go to my daughter's house and you don't get a paper napkin or a plastic straw or, or, or a styrofoam anything. And all her soaps in her house are biodegradable or whatever the heck she calls them, right? I mean, she's far ahead of me because it does, we don't want to ruin the water table or whatever it is where the stuff goes after it goes down the sink. And so that's going to become the norm. And if you go to Europe, they don't have one, two recycling things for trash. They have five. Mm. The brown bottles have to get separated from the green bottles, from the white clear bottles, from the plastic that's not colored, and then the paper, and then there's the real trash, which you have to take and make a compost out of and bury it in your backyard. I was just on the phone with Sepovet Canada, interestingly, uh, which is a French company, because uh, you're talking about Europe, and they were giving me a massive amount of info on water in relation to growing cotton, in relation to how much water is required if it, you're actually using polyester. Uh, and of course, now you're, you know, you're also into the world, like you're saying of, well, let's just not even deal with all that. Let's just take these petroleum plastics and, you know, and, and make fabric out of that. But uh, well, how did I get onto that? I guess you talking about water and all of that. And what I was curious is, is how, um, is that an enticing piece of the puzzle that our industry can look to recruit the next generation to get excited about joining the uniform industry is we have all of these textiles that we're burning through. I mean, forget about fashion for a second as a big culprit, but you know, we are wearing out textiles, you know, by the tons every day in the uniform industry. And um, is that where we can see young people doing some of their best for our industry? Well, look at it in terms of a calling, right? You have police officers that choose to be a police officer because it's a calling. You have EMS workers, you have nurses, you have doctors. They're callings, right? They're not, a police officer is not in to be a police officer because he's making a lot of money. Police mm -hmm. officers because it's a calling. If we approach young designers in that same way, say, hey, help us design product that we don't have to dispose of it in some island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean somewhere. Help us get to there. Now that's a different environment. So now you have textile engineers, you have designers working together to make a product that can be used in its next life. And so it becomes a calling. I mean, like anything else, it becomes a calling. Think of it in those terms. So those young designers, and let's, let's be realistic. They are the gen, whatever letter we're up to, Y, Z, whatever. I don't and know. They all think that way. You know, my, I, I was with my grandchildren just the other day and the restaurant put down plastic straws and they gave them back. The young people coming out now, you know, they're, that's how they're thinking. And if they want to be part, they, if they have that design inclination, and, and many of them do, you know, they're artists, they're designers, they're whatever, and then they're thinking, okay, but now let's apply clean energy or, or you know, save the planet. You know, you know, we used to call them tree huggers back in the day, but now we're beginning to love those guys. Sure. So you'd recommend the uniform industry? I would recommend the uniform industry to anyone who wants to have just a tremendous career, can be creative, whether you're on the business side, the sales side, or the creation side. 
there's so much to do and so much to learn. Absolutely. I'd recommend it any day, anytime. Everyone should come to it and be ready to have a smile on their face when they start the day and a smile on their face when they finish the day. Works for me.